Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted September 1st, 2017, we consider international echoes of Charlottesville, Virginia's fatal Unite the Right rally last month, as noted in the WPJ blog post headlined, Far-Right Movements Are Starting to Converge, Posing an Ever Greater Risk. We'll also spotlight top features in the World Policy Journal summer issue, cover line Justice Denied. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants, and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Back in 1991, Shintaro Ishihara, a Japanese policymaker, wrote a book called The Japan That Can Say No questioning what he saw as the country's post-war role as America's unstinting Asian ally. The book was a sensation in a Japan whose bubble was about to burst, bringing three decades of breakneck growth to an end. And since then, Japan has evolved away from its role as silent submissive to the American dominatrix, but mostly in style rather than substance. Tuesday's flight of a North Korean ballistic missile over Japan is a case in point. Any normal country, any country whose citizens expect to be defended from foreign attack by their government, would have regarded that missile as an act of war. But Japan let America do the talking. Japan has one of the world's most capable and well-funded armed forces. Its deployment is still subject to restrictions written into Japan's constitution by the staff of General Douglas MacArthur, who oversaw the post-war occupation. But self-defense is completely in bounds. So imagine this just for a moment. What if Japan did what any nation would be within its rights to do right now? What if Japan launched a retaliatory airstrike that destroyed the North Korean launch site and future threats to its population? The fact that thousands of North Korean artillery tubes are positioned within striking distance of South Korea's capital city, Seoul, is often cited by American strategists as the reason not to take these kinds of actions. And there is little doubt that a U.S. or South Korean strike on the North would make an attack on Seoul almost inevitable. That's a severe risk. But the logic does not necessarily follow a Japanese action. The North would most likely have to take the blow, perhaps seeking some way to strike back at Japan, but it would also want to avoid an escalation that would bring the U.S. and South Korea in, too. Suddenly, the dilemma is local. It's the North's problem. Yes, the Chinese, who deftly used Japan's very real wartime atrocities to keep the Japanese genie in the American bottle, would no doubt complain and possibly even incite the ransacking of Japanese businesses on the mainland, as they have in past disputes. But a line must be drawn somewhere over North Korea's behavior. Empty threats and bluffs that keep being called are counterproductive. The linkage of everything North Korea does to action by the global superpower gives Pyongyang's regime control of the playing field. Maybe then the answer is local. Maybe we need a Japan that says yes. For World Policy On Air, I'm Michael Moran. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. One people, one nation, and the inspiration. You will not replace us. You will not replace us. You will not replace us. Blood and soil, blood and soil, blood and soil. Howls of hate at the Charlottesville, Virginia Unite the Right rally in August. It left one counter-protester murdered, 
two policemen dead in a copter crash, more than 50 others injured and widespread condemnation of President Trump's missing moral compass, not to mention his spelling. Repeatedly finding both fault and good character on both sides of the confrontation over alt-right, neo-Nazi, white supremacist ideology, the president subsequently sent out several tweets about the nation needing to heal, but repeatedly spelled it H-E-E-L, which would suggest becoming more obedient or contemptible. But far-right coordination and cooperation today is not merely an American phenomenon, according to a recent post on the World Policy blog by Amarnath Amarasingam and Jacob Davey of the London-based Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Far-right movements are starting to converge, the headline warns, posing an ever greater risk. And I discussed it with Davey the other day for this podcast. Jacob Davey, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you. Your article starts by previewing a far-right campaign to disrupt the tide of immigrants across the Mediterranean by the mission called Defend Europe. What was its stated rationale? The originally stated aim of the mission was to hire a boat to actively block NGO search and rescue ships who were providing aid to refugees and migrants in the Mediterranean. However, it shifted this approach to monitoring the situation and, uh, in their own words, document the doings of NGOs and expose their collaboration with the human smugglers. Ah, yes, that's the point. Not only are they trying to keep the, uh, the immigrants from Europe, but they're claiming that the rescue ships are actually part of a deal uh, with uh, illegal people smugglers. What's the evidence on that? I think here we do need to be careful of drifting into the territory of conspiracy theory. To some degree, NGOs and people smugglers do have a symbiotic relationship with traffickers leaving smuggling ships adrift just uh, within the boundary for international waters. And because search and rescue vessels are aware of this, they naturally prioritize these areas. However, this relationship has been extrapolated by some to suggest that there is a level of collusion between these two groups, and this has been co-opted into global conspiracy theories around concerted efforts to displace the population of Western countries. Uh, as you said, the plans uh, originally uh, called for blocking NGO ships, then simply monitoring them, and finally I read uh, just picking up immigrants whose flimsier boats had sunk, but without any medical resources that they would actually need, and returning them back across the sea. Why those moderations and modifications? I'd say this has a lot to do with the intense scrutiny that the Defend Europe mission came under, both from activists and from the media. As they realized that there were a number of actors not only monitoring their work, but actively seeking solutions to counter it, they were forced to scale back their intended actions and moderate their objectives. And the mission had its own problems in August, both mechanical and financial. Uh, tell first uh, about the ship actually going adrift. Well, a few weeks ago, the ship uh, suffered a mechanical failure and was unable to maneuver. I mean, what was particularly interesting here is this attracted the attention of one of the NGO ships who the mission had set out to, to hinder. And uh, ultimately, Defend Europe refused this assistance and removed themselves uh, and resolved the issues themselves. But the irony is nevertheless slightly amusing, I think. Why and with what effect was one of the mission's crowdsourcing pages shut down? 
Yeah, well, that's very interesting. Um, so a significant amount of lobbying under the hashtag Defund Defend Europe campaign and a number of accounts linked to Defend Europe were shut down as a result of this activism. For example, members of the mission were using Patreon, a crowdfunding service which has been used by other extreme right activists. And Patreon removed a number of accounts linked to Defend Europe following this activism, limiting their ability to collect funds. This mechanism is in itself particularly interesting as it mirrors the effect of activism in the wake of Charlottesville, which has seen extreme right groups forced off some of these platforms. Let's look at the groups behind the mission. Defend Europe was launched by the French-born group Generation uh, Identaire, I guess it's pronounced, which is itself a splinter group from the larger Nouvelle Droite or New Right Party. But identitarianism is actually a pan-European movement now. What are its hallmarks? I think they can uh, broadly be characterized as a white nationalist movement. Uh, they largely operate through offline activism with a sort of group core membership of young people. They advocate for a return to traditional Western values characterized as a focus on the preservation of European culture. They're notable in their anti-Islam, anti-migrant, and anti-multicultural focus, and they promote narratives surrounding cultural differences between what they see as a homogenous West and cultural tensions posed by minority communities. Where has it spread geographically and with what links ideologically? Well, they now have branches in Germany, Austria, France, and Scandinavia, and have actively supported groups in the global counter-jihad movement, such as Pegida in Germany. They also have a number of groups starting to adopt their imagery, such as Scottish Dawn, which are an emerging group in the UK. Ideologically speaking, Richard Spencer is himself a self-described identitarian, and there are links to the US alt-right, as demonstrated by identitarian support for the Charlottesville march. Furthermore, you then also have a number of very far-right groups and individuals which aren't necessarily linked to the identitarians ideologically, but who come out to support them, such as David Duke, for example. Uh, talk about the increased cohesion between these far-right groups. On, on what they collaborate, uh, the motivation that jihadi violence provides them, and why you see the result is so worrying. So we're starting to see an increase in coordination and collaboration between extreme right groups globally. Traditionally, when you look at the extreme right ecosystem, you see a lot of fragmented and competing groups who clash over ideological standpoints. However, we're starting to see these groups put aside their differences and focus on common grievances and common goals. This is particularly worrying as you can see this collaboration starting to manifest itself into real-world impact. That's what you saw with Defend Europe's crowdfunding, but also in the Charlottesville demonstration where you saw a broad church of groups coming together under the same banner. What this collaboration allows for is these groups to more effectively broadcast their messaging and to represent a more united front, which is an effective recruitment tool. Furthermore, as these groups start to unify, you're faced at an operational level with a much larger problem. If you look at the other side then, as jihadist violence continues, this also acts as a recruitment mechanism for these groups. And you can see a process of reciprocal radicalization initiate, whereby Islamist extremism forces individuals into the arms of extreme-like groups, and actually vice versa as well, where you can see Islamist groups using extreme-like violence as a recruitment mechanism. So when these, group, when these groups represent a united front, 
what this does is attract individuals who are worried about the threat posed by jihadist violence. And what this means, as you can see, individuals with legitimate concerns brought into a coalition which actually has some very extreme views. You also see growing media support and tech connectivity. Talk about the influence of America's neo-Nazi daily stormer media operation and what's called 4chan slash PAL chat rooms. So these forums have proved themselves to be effective engine rooms for promoting extreme right messaging online. With regards to the Defend Europe mission, you saw evidence of individuals on the poll board collaborating to provide operational intelligence for the for this mission. But this coordination is part of a broader trend. You also saw users of these forums collaborate operationally to attempt to influence the US and French elections through the targeted use of memes and other user-generated content, and actually quite sophisticated uh, disinformation campaigning. More broadly, uh, members of these forums also coordinate to harass individuals who offer an alternative point of view through the use of trolling campaigns. Say more about the crowdfunding efforts. How much was raised and the support they got from a KKK Imperial Wizard or former KK Imperial Wizard David Duke and a Canadian journalist named Lauren Southern? So uh, in order to appeal to sort of global audiences who might be uh, in kind and in, uh, supportive of these missions, these groups used crowdfunding sites such as Patreon and WeSearcher to raise nearly 100,000 euros. Now this was made possible by promotion from a range of sources such as David Duke who has over 40,000 followers and actually promoted links to their crowdfunding page on his Twitter handle. But also the group also received favorable coverage from a range of other sources including Breitbart. Now on their mission, they were also accompanied by the alt-right or alt-light journalist and blogger Lauren Southern who is documenting their efforts. What's quite interesting is actually she was also raising funds on Patreon. So when Patreon shut down Defend Europe's accounts, they also shut down hers. How does the increased spirit of cooperation and commonality of purpose among far-right groups in so many places change the dangers they pose compared with the jihadist extremism and violence that we are already facing? So as these groups coordinate and collaborate, uh, the sort of dangers are twofold. Firstly, through representing a united front, they're able to centralize funding opportunities and more effectively mobilize supporters from a range of organizations and ideological standpoints, both in online activism and offline action. Secondly, by representing this united front, they're able to produce a more compelling message and effectively recruit a greater number of individuals. Ultimately, these groups are a different beast to jihadists, but what you can see is a commonality in the way that they produce messaging to appeal to a range of grievances, the way they disseminate their messaging online, and the way they coordinate their actions through online channels. Jihadist violence is more spectacular than that committed by the extreme right and often produces a higher death toll. But that doesn't mean we should discount the extreme right who have proven themselves uh, both in the UK and the US to be capable of committing acts of terrorism. Also, more importantly, perhaps, who are actively trying to shift public discourse over, more broadly over to their way of thinking. Far-right convergence must be met with similar cooperation and new tactics by those who oppose them, you write. What strategy and tactics uh, do you see as most useful? 
Well, there are a range of intervention strategies which we are employing to push back against the extreme right, which operate across the spectrum, ranging from direct engagement with at-risk individuals to education work which helps build broader resilience. With regards to this resilience building, there's a lot of work which is currently being done in classrooms. At ISD, we have found ways of using the voices of former extremists to produce the Extreme Dialogue resource, which equips teachers to better address the issues of violent extremism in the classroom. There's also work which is being done to equip young people with the digital literacy skills to recognize the divisive tactics employed by extremist messengers. You then also have counter-messaging campaigns, which can use marketing tactics to target alternative narratives to at-risk audiences. Last week, last year, sorry, in partnership with Google Jigsaw, we disseminated content produced by an American organization called Life After Hate, and this actually resulted in a number of individuals who were engaging with extreme right material actively reaching out to help disengaging from extremist groups which they were involved in. So finally, further down the spectrum, there's direct engagement work. And what this does is connect individuals who are promoting violently extreme ideology online with credible messengers such as former extremists in private online conversations with the aim of uh, initiating a process of disengagement. I think it's uh, important to note that none of these are silver bullets and more can be done to counter the threat of extremist groups, but we have found that these tactics are useful in facing up to this challenge, and that's something which we're working to develop uh, more. Jacob Davey, thank you. Thank you. Jacob Davey is a project coordinator at the London-based Institute for Strategic Dialogue. With senior research fellow Amarnath Amarasingam there, he wrote the WPJ blog post headlined, Far-right movements are starting to converge, posing an ever greater risk. Since we spoke, a number of Trump cabinet members and congressional Republicans have distanced themselves from President Trump's moral ambiguity on Unite the Right rally violence. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said the president speaks for himself, not the American people's values. Gary Cohn, director of Trump's National Economic Council, said the administration can and must do better on condemning hate groups. Also, the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination issued a formal early warning over conditions in the U.S. and urged the Trump administration to, quote, unequivocally and unconditionally reject discrimination. Over the past 10 years, only Iraq, Kyrgyzstan, Nigeria, Burundi, and Ivory Coast have received such warnings. Featured in the WPJ summer issue, Coverline Justice Denied, you'll find articles about how Egypt's lawmakers codify oppression, why Honduran farmers sued the World Bank for investing in murder, what imperils disruptive New Berlin, and much more. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Interim editor Caroline Preston, managing editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer for the last time, Anna Grace Carter, and we wish her well. I'm David Alpern.